This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Is it possible that you could have prevented your father's death if you had saved him? In spite of the fact that this was what he wanted, wasn't that difficult? When we die, how do we want others to remember us? In our final days, how do we want to be treated? Death is nothing new to Yvonne Caputo. In her early 30s, she was able to name 17 family members and friends who had passed away. Claude and his son Jimmy, both dead by suicide, her cousin Alan, murdered in Central Park, and her brother Mark, killed in a car accident, were among those who died. Each of these deaths left her with many questions, the most important of which was, why don't we talk about the end of life before the end of life? While working in a retirement community, Yvonne learned about the five wishes a legal document that expresses a person's end-of-life wishes beyond an advance directive. She decided to broach this difficult subject with her dad. What would the outcome of discussing such a dark subject be? Yvonne Caputo's first book, Flying with Dad, was about her father's experience in World War II, but this wasn't what readers focused their questions on. Instead, they asked her about how she and her dad talked about what he wanted for his end-of-life experiences how she walked him through his five wishes document, and how, when the day came, she stopped the paramedics from reviving him. In Dying with Dad, Yvonne shares the joy she felt when her father died on his terms. And the reason she knew what those terms were was because they had had a heart-to-heart conversation about it before it was too late. Dying with Dad inspires us to think about meaningful discussions For when we or our loved ones are aging or preparing for death, discussions about death and grief, but also about crossing the finish line joyfully and triumphantly. You can have the conversations that matter before it's too late. Valeria interviews Yvonne Caputo. She's the author of Flying with Dad, A Daughter, A Father, and the Hidden Gifts in His Stories from World War II, and Dying with Dad, tough talks for easier endings. Yvonne Caputo is also a psychotherapist, corporate trainer, a consultant, and she has been a teacher and the head of a human resource department in a retirement community. She has a master's degree in education and clinical psychology. Meet Yvonne at ingeniumbooks.com backslash Yvonne Caputo. Here's the interview with Yvonne Caputo. In your own words, who is Yvonne Caputo? Yvonne Caputo 
is a deliciously semi-retired mother, grandmother, trainer, psychotherapist, and teacher. Wow, many roles, right, Yvonne, that we we play in this in this life. It's what brings meaning to us, isn't it? All these different experiences we have. Not all of them good ones, but I love the idea that we can find meaning and we can learn from the ones that are not so pleasant. So I guess with that in mind, I'll ask you this question, this open question. What do you feel is the purpose of the human experience? Why are we here? Oh, in, in broad brushstrokes, I think we're here to connect. I think we're here to learn. I think we're here to experience. Um, I think we're here to grow. I think we're, we're here as a way of, of, of touching so many wonderful things experientially. Yes, we are here to connect. We are here to grow. So when you say connect, connect with one another, with ourselves, with God, with our idea of God, how would you elaborate on that? All of the above. It's, it's like <laughs> I'm thinking of a, uh, a quiz where you get choices. As a matter of fact, I just finished one of these. And, and then generally, D is all of the above. Um, I find connection to God through my relationships with people, through my relationship with the physical world, with my relationship with animals. Uh, we have a lovely, lovely rescue dog that bring, that brings us great pleasure. So the connection to all of those things. I love the way you said that. Yeah, our connection to God through our relationships to other people, to animals and everything around us, in a sense. That makes, I mean, that resonates true to me very much. Because once we understand what God is, and actually I want to ask you that question, that open question again, what is your idea of God? Who, what is God? And where is God? Wow. Uh, in Judaism, and, and in many religions, it's the person who remains nameless. It's so big that you can't put a name to it. Um, I am very fond of Native American theology the great spirit. Um, so that's my idea of God. It's unknowable, but it's great. And there are times when I feel the presence of something that I know is bigger than me, that's helpful to me in ways that I couldn't be if I were all alone if there wasn't something else out there. God in, in my world is what gives my life meaning. It's, it's the way in which I think about the rules by which I live my life. You know, that what I do should not impact people in a negative way. And if I do something that impacts people in a negative way, that I take care of it, that I apologize for it, that I try not to do it again, that 
I'm just sensitive to how I relate to anyone and everyone around me. So it's thoughtfulness too. I think my relationship with God has made me more thoughtful. Wow, what's not to love about that? <laughs> I know you mentioned the name God being nameless, unknowable, but the way you speak is as if you actually know God, because that's being kind to others. There's living a loving kind of life, meaningful, loving, peaceful, all those beautiful qualities that we humans kind of tend to lean toward. So... It really feels that way, like listening to you. Ah, she knows God, because <laughs> that's really what it is, a reflection of that knowledge. God is it's to be known somehow. It would be through the intellect. That resonates with me. It's one of my practices. It is a knowledge now, but it's also practice. And that comes from knowledge, which is very much intellectual. But it's in a way, it's correcting the mind. The mind has so many tendencies, as you know, as a, as a psychologist, <laughs> as a therapist. And then we kind of, uh, through that knowledge, we kind of almost like leave that flavor of what it's like to be free from separation with everything that we come across. It's a different way of, of seeing life. So I do, I do hear that in your words and also in your actions by writing the books that you have written doing the work that you're doing. It's, it's truly beautiful to see that, that reflection in this reality. Thank you, Yvonne. It's for me a connection because you mentioned something of head and heart. You know, it's not just thinking for facts. It's not just thinking for in a mathematical kind of way. It's, it's thinking with your heart so that you're guided in terms of, of, of where your feet land. I remember talking to somebody and he said, what's your moral compass? And I said that my foot should not be anywhere near or on someone else's foot. It's, it's, it's simply that. Uh, and that's not always easy to do. You know, it's not always easy to do, but there is such a need, I think, in the world today for kindness. And part of what I look for on a daily basis is how can I be kind? It, having somebody simply trying to make a left-hand turn and me stopping and allowing that to happen or walking in the woods and, and finding some debris and picking it up, you know, that, that there is always a way on a daily basis, to express kindness. And that's the head-heart connection. Yes, interesting you say that. I interviewed somebody, I think more than one person about that, the head-heart connection. But then it goes back to this. I think we just use different words for different language for it, but it's the same thing, isn't it? I talk to a lot of religious people and, and spiritual people, therapists and scientists, and I see that we we kind of agree with this idea that whatever God is, it's reflected, clearly reflected in the experience of doing something to others, doing something for others that we would do for ourselves, treating the others as we treat ourselves. 
So that really, in the end, really, that's the message that I get from everyone that I speak to in a way, which is really wonderful to contemplate that this idea, everything. So in, in the end, we, it's interesting to know when you talk about growth, when you mention growth too, about what's the, the purpose of life to grow, maybe growing enough to be able to recognize that, that everything is connected and treating others the way I treat myself. That's, that's, that should be enough <laughs> to reflect what God is. Yeah, in a way, that's how I feel these days. Uh, it's always evolving, but um, that's what it comes down to. And in simplicity for me, because of, of my experience with death and dying, on a personal level, when I close my eyes for the final time, I want to be able to reflect back and say, it was good. It was good. Um, you know, the mistakes I made, you know, I tried to fix them as best I, as I can, um, that, that people who are around me feel touched because I have been a presence in their life, um, that someone who, and actually this has happened because you mentioned the books, it's happened that people who've read Dying with Dad have changed. One young woman said that her parents would try to bring up death and dying, and she would say, no, we don't need to talk about this now. It's not going to happen for a while. We can, we can talk about this later. However, when she read the book, she went back to them and said, let's, let's talk. And then an older gentleman who did the five wishes, which is an advanced directive with heart, his family, for his birthday, he wanted his family to talk to him about the five wishes. So they were going through it, and he said he wanted to be cremated. And they said, well, gee, Dad, what do you want us to do with your ashes? And he said, oh, I don't care. Throw them over the bridge. You know, you know what, do, what do I want with my ashes? And they said, gee, wouldn't you like us to take them out to the farm where you were raised as a boy? And he said, that's a lot of bother. And their response was, no, it wouldn't be a, a lot of bother. We would love to do that. And so he changed his five wishes so that when the time comes, they can do that. The third one was the most impactful to me. And a woman in my writer's group had a chronic illness. And surgery after surgery after surgery being debilitated, being in pain, giving up her career. And when she read Dying with Dad, she did the five wishes. And she sat down with her family and went over everything. Now, imagine she's in her mid-50s. So we get news that she has chosen hospice. And her husband gave us an opportunity to talk via Zoom. And when I got on the call with her, her time with me was thanking me for the five wishes, for thanking me for a document that allowed her to talk to her family, for thanking me for her family being okay with the fact that she decided she didn't want to do any more. Now, how powerful is that? 
So that kind of connectedness with people that what you do or say can change them in, in ways that you might never imagine. And, and certainly I never would have imagined uh, that the book would have that kind of impact on the people who read it. How wonderful. And it caught my attention immediately. Yeah, we talked briefly off record. So that was the book that, oh, dying with that. Uh, for some reason, it really caught my attention. And then as I learned more about the stories and what happened, then it's, I mean, you sent me a few pages. Amazing what he went through. And the idea of letting go, I know so many people say it's so hard to do. But when we find this profound meaning, this profound reason why to do it, why to let go, then it becomes easier. That's what it felt like when I was reading what you went through. And you actually talked about something that caught my attention too. It's something called sacred joy. Yes. What kind of joy that was sacred to you? Well, my careers have, I think, positioned me to write the book in that I was a teacher and a psychotherapist and I worked in a retirement community. And in that retirement community, elderly folks would just pop into my office, sit down, we'd have discussions. And sooner or later, one of them would say, Yvonne, I want to go. I just want to go. And my response was, tell me, tell me more. And the reasoning was pretty similar on all accounts. I'm tired. I'm in pain. My friends have gone. Um, I've lived a good, healthy life. It's time. I want to go. And so that kind of acceptance just awed me that they had come to this place where what you said was true. They were ready to let go. And having those conversations with my father I mean, how, how much more sacred does life get that a father can tell his child, his, his adult child, I'm ready. I'm so ready. Yes. I know for some people it, it sounds, my sound, sad, right? And overwhelming even. Some people don't want to talk about it. the subject of how to let go, how to, in the end, ask the right questions and to the people we love when they're about to leave the body, to, to let go of the body. And I feel that it's such an empowering topic and, and not just a topic, but knowledge and experience to have. And I was about to interview somebody about that, the way he let go. He helped his father actually to die in his house instead of in the hospice. That's something that he wanted to do. So he, he fulfilled that wish too. I didn't get to interview him, but he sent me the book and all. We talked by email. So I, I guess now is a good time, Yvonne, to go back and ask you these open questions about the books that you have written. So my audience, they have an idea, a, a kind of overall idea. So the first book is titled Flying with Dad, A Daughter, A Father, and the Hidden Gifts in His Stories from... World War II. And then the second book, Dying with Dead, Tough Talks for Easier Ending. I love the, the subtitle too. So talk to me about these two books, how they came to this reality. Okay, so I was in my 60s and it's 2008. 
And dad lives on the other side of Pennsylvania. It's a six and a half hour drive. But we talked every week. And he would talk about his dialysis treatments and his appointments with the doctors and the in-home care he was receiving that kept him in his beloved home. And when that was done, we struggled. I was not, am not a sports fan. But on one night, one January cold, dark night, he opened up and told me a quirky, funny, off-the-wall scary story about making an emergency landing in a B-24 in Fried, Belgium, toward the end of the Second World War. I was transfixed. So I said, hey, Dad, you know, let me get a piece of paper and a pencil. I want to write this down. What the heck do you want to do that for? And I said, this is something I think the family would like to know. And whatever it was, let me call it now the hand of God. On the next phone call, the very next week, I said, if you're willing, Dad, start at the beginning. And he did. And story after story after story came rolling off his tongue. And it wasn't about Eisenhower, and it wasn't about FDR or Stalin or any kind of thing like that. It was just these intimate stories of how he chose to set aside his presidential deferment, which would have meant he would not have had to go to war, to become a navigator of B-24s in the Second World War. And something happened in the telling of those stories, and that was that dad opened up to me in the most intimate of ways, and it was the what it was, this is the father I wanted. This is the father that I wanted to get to know. It was all embedded in his stories. And the other thing that his stories did for me is they helped me to understand who he was and why he was. And so I just had all of this. And at some point I said, I think I've got a book. I've never written a book before. I, you know, I didn't know the first thing about it. But I went through and completed it, and it was lovely because he saw the first draft. I gave him the first draft of the book on Christmas 2009. And um, that's where Flying with Dad came from. Dying with Dad was never on my radar. My publisher came to me, and she said, I think you've got a second book. Oh, really? <laughs> You know, a second book. And she said, why don't you talk about the five wishes? And so that generated the book, um, Dying with Dad. And in that, I talk about my journey of being comfortable talking about death and dying. Um, I, I say frequently, by the time I was in my early to late 30s, there were 17 people in my life that had passed away. Two suicides, one murder, my brother in 1978. So I have this life that, that just was so impacted by losing people. And you, when you and I were pre-talking, I talked about how getting through those 
was a gift and there was grace that came through it and there was learning that came through it. There was appreciation for life that came through, you know, experiencing and, and, and transcending the grief that comes along with it. So that's pretty much what dying with dad is all about. I talk about the retirement community and the conversations that I talked about a little bit ago. I talked about, um, I there was one particular thing that really pushed me to be comfortable talking about death and dying. And that's that I had a client and she was acutely ill. And I saw her for a period of over 20 years and she wouldn't come every week. You know, we, we did our really big work in the beginning and every once in a while there would be uh, a message on my phone that she wanted to come back for what I would call a tune-up. And I began to question what value I was giving to her. And I happened to be attending a conference on trauma and I went up to the professor who was teaching it and I told him what I've just related to you. And he said to me, there's only one question you need to ask her. Well, that took me aback. And he said, the question you need to ask her is, how do you want to live until you die? The rest of that conference, I don't think I heard another thing that he said. I was so locked into, how in the world can I do this? You know, what? how is she going to respond to it? But a little later on, she called, and it was a tune-up. And I'm sitting in my chair, and I'm looking at her, and this question is rattling in my head. And I took a deep breath, and I said, I'm going to ask you a strange question. How do you want to live until you die? She cracked up. She was laughing so hard that the tears were streaming down her face. She said, Yvonne, that's the best question you've ever asked me. So her response really took that fear out of me that that I really could talk about death and dying in a meaningful kind of way. So that's really what dying with dad is all about, is those experiences along the way that prepared me for my father saying to me, I want to go. And Yvonne, I want to go feet first out of my own home. And because we did the paperwork, because I was his healthcare advocate, I was allowed, I was, I pushed that his do not resuscitate order was altered. And the EMTs in his house stopped working on him. And I laid down beside him and I put my arm over his chest and I told him that I loved him. And I told him that he was going to go see mom, which is one of the reasons he wanted to go. And then I did what was the glue in our family. I did the Lord's Prayer. And away he went. And the EMTs put him on the gurney, took him out of the house, feet first. It's western Pennsylvania, northwestern Pennsylvania. The snow is coming down an inch an hour. And the light from the open 
back doors of the ambulance were shining on dad's face. And there was this soft, sweet smile. And I did the victory yes out loud. The EMTs looked at me like I'd lost every marble that I might have had. And I said to them, you've given my father his dying wish. He wanted to go feet first out of his house. So when you mentioned earlier sacred joy, when I think about, and I can look over here, there's a picture of my dad on my desk. When I look at that picture, do I miss him? Oh, yeah. I had an experience of being in England recently where I went to two American Air Force bases, uh, World War II bases. At the same time, I was part of a choir that was singing in a cathedral. And we, we, we rehearsed. And once we rehearsed, we had to put our vestments on and out to the, the, out to the gathering place. And I burst into tears. The, the, the being on these two Air Force bases and the being in vestments about ready to sing a sacred service, I just missed my dad like I can't even begin to tell you. Now, what I know is he died in 2010. That raw feeling can come back at any time. And I knew I was okay. And I knew that there wasn't anything wrong with me. And I knew that I hadn't lost it. And I knew that they weren't going to come and take me to the funny farm. I knew that I was just experiencing. We all experience when we lose someone that it comes back in waves. Sometimes it's not there for a long time. And then I've had clients tell me that there will be just something that will trigger them. And they're right back as if it happened a moment ago. So, you know, all of that is a part of the, the joy I feel around writing the book, Dying with Dad. Right. Um, wow. Listening to you, I had questions that just come up. <laughs> so um, another question uh, that I would love for you to answer is, how do you make sense of suffering and especially connected to injustice? I would include that war in it. So how do you make sense of all of this? It doesn't make sense. It just, it doesn't make sense. Now, the Second World War, I think, of all of the wars was vastly different because of Hitler. But I don't understand man's inhumanity to man or woman's inhumanity to woman. I, I can't wrap my head around the fact that we can hate each other or we can pigeonhole people into groups because they're this way or they think that way or they have this color of their skin. I, I don't make sense out of that. What, what does make sense to me is that if there's going to be a change, I have to be a part of it. So that, that takes me back to that finding a way on a daily basis of being kind. Our doing this podcast is, is a way of spreading the word that my responsibility is to be something different because being kind 
being loving, being open to just makes sense to me. Whereas the other things, they don't make sense. Right. Uh, what a beautiful answer and very clear, very direct. Yes, it doesn't make sense. Right? I feel the same way, Vaughn. It doesn't. Yeah, I can't rationalize violence. Also, with that in mind, I'll ask you this question. As a therapist, how do we go from the practice of kindness to the embodiment of it? Because a lot of times when we have been traumatized, as you know, you know, PTSD, so many other kinds of traumas can get in the way. And it's very much in the body. So the body, it's holding those memories. And a lot of times we understand that we need to be kind with the mind, with the intellect, but then the body just responds, reacts in the opposite way in many situations. So talk to me about this movement, this dance per se, from knowledge, practice, to the embodiment, to becoming in a way that. Um, There's a great deal of work around the neurobiology of trauma. And they have literally done brain scans of people who have been through traumatic, very traumatic things. And what they see on the brain scan is that the whole brain lights up. Every area of the brain is impacted. So as a part of that, and I'm not a scientific person in that sense, but as a part of that, because the brain is so wired to every part of our body, we do embody trauma. And so what these neuroscientists are doing and psychologists uh, working with neuroscience is having people be comfortable, of course, talking about the trauma, but doing things that make them use their body. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, someone was talking to me about something that happened. And, and, and I asked him to locate, to close his eyes and to locate where he felt it. Where, where in his body was all of this stuff coming up? And he told me, in his shoulders, in his neck, in his, 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 uh, and in his head. They were all just really, really, really tight. And then I said to him, okay, just stay with it. Just stay with noticing what's going on in your body. And after a while, I said, what's happening now? He said, well, just in noticing it, it's lessening. Body's loosening up. Okay. Then the next thing I asked him to do was, tell me what gives you pleasure. Tell me something that just makes you light up. And his response was listening to music. And I said, okay, what's your playlist? And he told me what his playlist was. And I said, okay, now close your eyes. And I want you to think about that awful thing and notice where it's coming in your body. And when he was there, I said, okay, um, now I want you to put headphones on and I want you to start playing your playlist. And after a while, I said, what's happening? He said, it's all loosening up again. 
It's all just going away. So there is that mind-body connection. And there are some really, really top-notch scientists and psychologists who are helping folks like me have at our fingertips experiences that can help people who have been traumatized. And the goal is that you don't forget it because you can't. It's, it's impossible to, to forget it. But in remembering it, it doesn't have the impact or the strength that it once had. And to understand then along the way, when you're triggered, how to stop that triggering from happening. Happening. So here's something that I do in training a lot, and that's to think of negative emotions as stop signs. So I'll ask you, if you're driving in your car, what do you do when you get to a stop sign? Yeah, of course we stop. I don't drive, but yeah, that's common sense. Okay. And (laughs) somebody who's driving, what do they do next? After they've stopped. Um, There's a stop sign, then the red, and then they stop. And then what do they do? They wait for the green green, uh, light to... Right. Okay. So negative emotions are simply that. They're simply internal stop signs, which say, stop, look around, what's going on? And, and I want my clients to say the feeling, to say, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, anxious, I'm livid. Whatever it is, to say it out loud, and even better, to write the word down on a piece of paper, and then to say, okay... Knowing that I'm angry, we use that one. How do I want to proceed with caution? How do I want to use my values? How do I want to use my best self to handle this particular emotion? And what what I'm afraid we've learned to do through culture and parenting and all those kinds of things is we've learned to repress or try to push that feeling away. And when we do, we've gone through the stop sign without even looking to see. And then we're surprised when when there's a crash. So so here again, in, in a bodily kind of way, to think about that that feeling as this is my best friend. My anger is my best friend because it's alerting me that I need to do something. But to lash out, do I really want to do that? Do I want to sit with it? Do I want to give it some space and peace? Is it something that I need to talk to somebody about? Is it so minuscule that I just need to let it go? What do I want to do with it? Wow, that's you gave us a very clear picture of how to navigate the trauma world, or not just trauma, but anything that we wanted to heal, especially when it comes to feelings and emotions. Mm-hmm. That's a big one for for most of us. It, it's it's also it's ongoing. It's not something that we we don't all all of a sudden stop feeling or, or having emotions. As you said, we don't we don't um, the memories we cannot really get rid of them. They are always there. It's been my case too, personally. 
It's funny when you gave the example of drive. I don't drive, so I don't even know what to do when you go to stop. What do you do again? I have no idea. I know I'm 46 and I don't drive for a reason, Yvonne, because for some reason I get very anxious. I think I tried twice, but I'm not so good at it. And then I just gave up. It can be. It can be anxiety provoking. That's that's for sure. It is right. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. And I guess also it's because. I have seen too many people around me to get very angry. And, you know, people like my husband and I have seen my brother, my father even. So, and then it never made sense to me. Like, why do, why do they get so angry? I guess that stayed with me too, that um, maybe that impression that once you become a driver, you're most likely to be open to, you know, to become a- angry at other people. It then never really attracted me. So it, that might be the reason too. Well, again, <laughs> the anger is, for me, is not the problem. It's what you do with it. And and mm, I've had yeah. clients, and we've, we've worked on, because clients in particular, if they're driving and somebody's in the left lane and they're going slow and the left lane is for passing, that'll trigger them. And, and so we've talked about that, you know. All right, so what are you going to do? How are you going to handle that? Who are you as a person? And how do you want to be seen? And um, I had a, I have a very dear boss, um, best boss I've ever had. She's now 90. And I was struggling with something. Um, and she looked me in the face and coolly said to me, Yvonne, is that a hill you want to die on? <laughs> and I went, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, it's not worth it. So, you know, um, again, that's taking that feeling that's disturbing and and doing something productive with it. And it's it's there for a reason. It's if I walked out my driveway right now and I looked up the road and there's an 18 wheeler coming screaming down the road, I'm going to be triggered and I'm going to jump back. I'm going to be afraid and I'm going to jump back. So we don't want to not have those feelings because they're self-protective. That's what signals us that there's danger. If I'm out walking in the woods and there's a black bear, I'm going to do things differently, you know, than if I'm just walking and nothing happens. So we don't want to lose those negative feelings. What we want to do is we want to learn how to manage them. And for me, that stop sign just became a powerful tool to use with people. Yes, it very much makes a lot of sense to me. I guess for me, it has been not just with driving, but with life itself, kind of putting myself in positions where I don't give people even the, um, the, the opportunity to get angry. And I know I would as a driver for sure, <laughs> driving too slow or whatever it is. And also because I know I can't control that kind of environment. And sadly, we don't live in a, in a reality where everyone is doing the healing work and listening to conversations like this and trying to apply the knowledge. Not too many people, unfortunately. Well, that might be my I, excuse. <laughs> well, no, but I think there's a reality to what you have to say. And, and, and it's this. Freud left, Sigmund Freud left Austria, I believe, in 1939. If we were to do 
a timeline that included uh, prehistoric times up to now. And, and we drew from 1939 to 2023, it would be a blip on the radar. And it's only been since 1939 and maybe the turn of the century that there has been this kind of looking at the inner world of people and how we manage to navigate. So it's not an old science. We're just now, I think, really coming into our own. One of the things that really pleases me to hear is people seeking out therapy, of picking up the phone. I had a gentleman call me and he wanted to come in. And sadly, one of the things I have to do is ask about his insurance. And I didn't take his insurance, but I knew that there were people out there that did. But what I said to him is, you've done the hardest work of all. You picked up the phone and you called. You're on your way. So going back to that historical piece, this is all brand new. And when we'll go back to my dad, he told me about a nightmare that he had coming back from the war for three years in a row, the same nightmare. The B-24 was going down and he couldn't get out. He couldn't bail out. And he would wake up in the middle of the night screaming. My mother would wake him up but he would never tell her what it was. And I said to him, when he told me what the dream was, is I said, we know having nightmares is normal. And he responded, what the heck do you mean? And I told him that when we go through something that's really traumatizing, our brain latches on and, and creates a memory. Now, it's not a specific kind of memory oftentimes. And you were just, your brain was trying to work through what you experienced. And sadly, Dad, when you came home from the war, they didn't know this. They didn't know that nightmares were normal. They didn't know that flashbacks were normal. They didn't know the mechanism. They now can literally study with MRIs when somebody's having a flashback or, or remembering a trauma, just which areas of the brain light up, and it's normal. And, and I can literally, when I said to Dad, you know, the normalcy of all of this, I could literally hear his shoulders drop, finding out 60 years after the fact that there was nothing wrong with him. He was man enough because men enough have those experiences and women who are enough have those experiences where we remember. Wow. That's amazing how knowledge, it's so powerful, isn't it, Yvonne? So, like, as you said before, so beautifully and clearly about awareness. That's the first step, becoming aware uh, of how we are feeling, where we are feeling in a body, and then knowing th the reason why. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love, I mean, I love knowledge, I have to say. And sometimes it can be scary, right? Because then we are actually heading towards the truth and the truth is never something that we are we are not always ready for it 
But for some reason, or in my case, dealing with trauma, childhood trauma has been my door to healing, to happiness, to inner peace, being open to the truth. Mm -hmm. And the deeper I go, the better it is. Uh, it's scary, but I just can't stop, really. I, I love these conversations. I love what you do in your area of being a psychotherapist. There's something about scientists of the mind. That's what you're, you're trying to find, the truth. And that's what spiritual teachers, spiritual seekers are trying to find, the truth. We're all looking for the truth. So what's not to love about that courage and openness? So thank right. you for being you again. Oh, thank you. We're almost at the end of the conversation for today, but before we go, I do have a, the ending questions. But before that, would you like to add anything that you left unsaid or read a passage in your book, one of your, of your books, Yvonne, or both of them? Um, I don't have a book handy. I can get one. Yes, yes. Hang on. Yes. Okay, I'm back. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right, this is from Flying with Dad. I just opened it. I didn't, I didn't select anything. And the second section of Flying with Dad is written in my father's voice. And I was able to discover that because I have all of the letters that he wrote to my mother during the war. Okay, so here we go. Mike sat through so many ground school lectures. He felt like he could stand up at the front of the class and teach the crews himself. The repetitive lectures under Colonel Shower's command became tedious. The colonel was also responsible for the hours of flight practice, and when exhausted from a long training mission, Mike was none too fond of the colonel. Once he was rested and had a clear head, he couldn't argue with the 467th's record or reputation. Colonel Shower's superiors commended him for the performance of the 467th Bomb Group. They led in the percentage of aircraft fully operational and came in first or second for many months with the lowest loss rates. They set a record flying 100 missions and 140 days, dropped 13,353 tons of bombs, and flew 35 1,537 operational flying hours. The men who drove the base vehicles also set records for low motor pool accident rates. There were also records set for the best kept aircraft, a 30-hour engine change being done in just over eight hours, and the highest number of war bonds sold. And the chapter ends that Ed is experiencing flak for the first time. And these are incendiary bombs that burst way up high, 22,000 feet above the ground. And the shrapnel from these bombs, or this incendiary stuff, can tear through the walls of the plane. Okay, so dad's on one of his first missions. He's watching B-24s go down around him. He said, Yvonne, I was so scared, I peed myself. And I short-circuited my heat suit. So 22,000 feet above the ground is 40 to 60 degrees below zero. Dad, being the navigator, called on the inner phone and said to the pilot, we're approaching the English Channel. Get this baby down to an altitude so I don't freeze to death. So that's... That's what this chapter short circuit is all about. Wow. 
Ah, oh, wow. What comes to mind immediately as I listen to you reading that passage is that I wish that that would be from a healing mission or a spiritual mission that all these records had been set. Like, I guess that's how my mind works. And then I'm thinking about your father and all these soldiers, these, what the, the, they go through, their body, mind. Um, mm-hmm. That's, uh, yes. Yeah, even... One of the things I'll, that yeah. I have to say about dad and Colonel Shower yeah. was Colonel Shower really cared about his men. And this practice, 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 his, his rigidity sometimes was really what made dad's unit as safe as it was uh, to have the records that it was. And in, and in a book called The Anatomy of Courage, which I used for writing Flying with Dad, the man talks about it wasn't a sense of duty. It wasn't hate of Hitler. It wasn't anything other than the love that they shared with their fellow crewmen that made them as courageous as they were. That's where the courage came from, was love of the crew and love of the people down on the base who were keeping those planes safe. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's a, the, they are two very positive Remarks about the experience, right, Yvonne? I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So working together as a team and mm-hmm. having love as a foundation and then uh, having somebody as a leader as uh, this colonel, uh, his name, he just Colonel Shower. Shower. Yeah, that he was empowered enough for himself to create this, to minimize damage and, and create this sense of safety, even though in, in situations like that, it feels like there's none, right? It can, it can feel that way. So that's, that's, that's powerful when we think about it from this perspective. Although I have to say my path per se is peace and love and anything that can brings us this sense of freedom from within and war is something that I do not understand. As you mentioned before, making sense of that, I can't make sense. Like when I heard about the, this war between Ukraine and Russia, I mean, immediately I could not believe how can we let this happen? I mean, I was thinking about the minds that we have, the brilliant minds we have today with the, all the intelligence, with the technology that we have evolved to enjoy these days. How, how can this happen? This is, seems very ancient to me, this idea of a man killing one another. It doesn't... Doesn't make sense. Yeah, it, it does. But, you know, when, when I talk about some people, I know I'm not... I usually don't like talking about these things, but I talk to some of my guests about these things and people around me. And, and then they talk about power, that that's the, the love for power or maybe the obsession, right, for power. And, and what's the other, the other? It's a fear, really. That's what it feels to me as well. That's coming from fear and not love. That's when all, all these the violence really comes from. Sadly, sadly. Sadly. And... Um, there's a quote, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yes, right. And, and so that's uh-huh. mixed in there. Yeah. So with, with that in mind again, the end, of, the end of our conversation today, Yvonne, I thank you again for the courage to write books about these topics and, and then, you know, the, the beautiful topic of connecting deeply with human beings in life and death which really caught my attention. That's to me, takes, takes like hard courage 
So thank you for that. But before we end the conversation, I have two questions. And for you, I'll ask that question that I just mentioned, the word freedom. What is freedom to you? Like, What's the meaning of that? Or what does it look like in your life to be free? Uh, freedom to me is intimately tied with responsibility. That if I am going to be free, I need to be responsible for my behavior. I need to be responsible for treating other people the way I want to be treated. I'm responsible for being, of having integrity. So I, when, when people talk about freedom, what they don't attach to it is that the word requires being responsible. So freedom and responsibility are intricately connected for me. Yes. And that's uh, another wise answer. Yes, I have heard about choice. Yes, although we are not responsible for the way we have been brought up, a lot of us, and the traumas that we have inherited from, let's say, collective, you know, from collectively, from the, the collective human psyche. And then we have the traumas from childhood. I usually don't feel responsible for the, the traumas that I, you know, in the personality, how it developed and a lot of suffering with that. But I love the way you put that responsibility having something to do with choice and what can be done. So although I'm not responsible for the traumas that are here or they were here, but I can do something about it. And that's when freedom, right, sets in <laughs> as a real thing. Thank you for saying that. And my last question is, what three experiences you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die? Wow. Um, I want people to feel joy from the top of their head to the tip of their toes. Just the kind of joy that makes you want to dance. Mm-hmm. Yes. So <laughs> I want them to feel joy. Yeah. I want them to feel hope when they're suffering. Suffering is a part of life. I, I don't, it doesn't make sense. Okay, we're back to the sense thing. <laughs> yes. It's just there. Yes. But I want people to feel hope when they're suffering that with work on their part, they can transcend it. And then, absolutely, I want people to feel loved, unconditionally loved. The, the, kind, the kind that just makes you feel whole. I think everyone should experience those. Joy and hope. An unconditional love. Yes. Um, a, a trillion yeses to that vision, this beautiful wisdom that you speak of. Yes, as a vision for humanity. Yes. Thank you so much, Yvonne, for, being, yeah, for being here. We need <laughs> the, your beautiful presence. Thank you. And before we say goodbye for today, where's the best place to find more information about you, what you do, and your books? 
Um, if people just Google my name, Yvonne Caputo and Ingenium Books, that will take you to my publisher's website where you can find out more about the two books. Um, actually, if you Google my name, I have now done this. It's a surprise to me, to be honest, <laughs> that I can find myself in so many different ways by Google. Yes. Um, and the two books are available um, through ordering through your favorite independent bookstore and through, of course, online retailers like Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Wonderful. I'll have the link, the website link on the podcast notes as well. Thank you so much again, Yvonne, and we'll talk soon. Bye it for was a pleasure. Thank you, Sue. Yeah, same. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Yvonne Caputo and her work, please visit ingeniumbooks.com backslash Yvonne Caputo. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.